I was uh, reading that post-COVID, the return of people back to their offices, which uh, despite the fact that it appears to be bumpy, bumpy is fairly, fairly decisive at this point. Um, workers are being told to go back to their offices. And yes, there is some flexibility to it, but overwhelmingly, see the majority of the work week, the majority of the work week is taking place back in offices, and I expect that trend will only continue. And they found out, interestingly, that when the back-to-office imperatives, directives came from corporate offices back to the, uh, to the workers, that there was a spike, because they have data for all this, there was a spike in people watching Mad Men. And why is that? Because people wanted to know how to dress. Now, this is uh, data-driven. I have also a, um, a first-hand account of this of sorts. A good friend of mine is a uh, suit manufacturer, and he told me that uh, they ran out of the ability to find certain cloths, uh, dark, particularly gray and black and dark blues and things of that nature, right after uh, COVID ended and people were ordered back to work, and it was about a logjam of about a year, because people were forced to go back to work and either what they saw in the closet they didn't like so much anymore, it looked old. Most likely what they saw in the closet didn't fit them anymore. <laughs> but in any event, there was a run on suits. When you look at how people dressed as it's depicted in Mad Men, which the truth of the matter is that's generally the way people dressed. Maybe not as well defined and the clothes weren't as well fitting, it wasn't so slick looking, but the overarching styles of what you saw people wearing in Mad Men was in fact the de rigueur style of that era. People would go out of their homes, would never think of wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt. People went out dressed. They wore shirts and ties and jackets. They put a fedora hat on. And what era am I talking about? I'm talking about the 50s and the 60s, even even somewhat into the 70s. This idea really resonated with me because when I was on a plane, there was a trailer for a movie called Napoleon. Now, I haven't had the chance to see it yet. It looks fantastic, actually. But the story of how and why we dress the way we do, you might think that it's more, more devil meets Prada than it is Mad Men, but you'd be mistaken. The truth of the matter is the story of how we dress is the story of Napoleon, not Madison Avenue necessarily. I'm going to explain why. The effect of the military story on the clothes that we wear begin from the, from the, from the Napoleonic era. I'll give you a small example. Single breast, do, double breast, and vests are all the different overcoats that different armies wore. The Soviet army wore double breast. The British army, the Victorian, classic Victorian coat was a single breast. Armies in that era distinguished themselves by the color and also the number of buttons that they had on their jackets. Laces that are on shoes were directly tied to the development of what's called gaiters. You see in World War I and earlier army uh, issue, they used to wear those leather things around their calves. They're called gaiters. And it was meant to prevent their feet from swelling, from carrying all the equipment and walking. They laced them up 
Later on, they replaced them with buckles. The shoes that we wear have generally buckles or laces. The wearing of belts were meant to support wearing guns, ammunition, knives, and swords. The wearing of epaulets, I don't have to explain that to you, you know where that comes from. It provides an indication immediately of a person's rank and what particular unit or regiment they belong to. But think even a little closer. The wearing of hats, particularly in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. These are all people who had served mandatory draft in the army. They always wore hats in the army. Chinos were issued to American servicemen who served in the Philippines. They called them chinos because it was a play in the word China. Bomber jackets. I could go on and on and on. Wristwatches came from the British Army during the First World War so that everyone could time themselves to a moment of attack. They felt that putting the watches into their coat pockets it was inconvenient because they would fall out all the time. But the story as to why the fashion that we wore and continue to wear is so heavily influenced by the army is not only the story of tailors who, after being discharged from the army, were developing and cutting and sewing things that they had learned and were familiar with. It is also the story of people wearing things that remind them of their halcyon days of greatness. The days that I was young and I was strong and I fought the enemy and I defeated the enemy. That when they would put on a hat and put on a jacket and tie their shoes and put their wristwatches on, it was a reminder to them of all the great things that they had participated in. The great moments in their life when they were associated with something of great meaning. But there's an alternate story that we read about in the Torah portion for this morning. There was a point to all this, actually, about clothing. Because the Torah portion for this morning is notable in two ways. First of all, it is the only portion in the entire book of Shemot, in all of Exodus, where Moses' name is not mentioned even once. Not once. Moses is simply referred to as a pronoun. He's called and you. His name's not mentioned. But there is someone whose name is mentioned all the time. It's not Moses. It's Aaron. <laughs> For those of you who will be listening to this in the podcast later, I was pointing to Cantor Moses, <laughs> and now I'm pointing to myself. Aaron, who's not the political leader of the people, Aaron, HaKohen HaGadol, the high priest, the big kahuna. That's where the word comes from, by the way. That Aaron, the high priest, is the religious leader of the people. Pay attention. We think of Moses as Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, Moses the lawgiver. But Moses was not the religious leader of the people. Moses is not involved in the religious ritual worship at all. It is handed over to his brother Aaron. That separation would also find itself throughout the entire story of ancient Israel. The kings were never involved in religious worship. King David never served as the high priest, unlike in all the other ancient societies where the priest, like the Pharaoh, was always the head of the church. 
not amongst the Jewish people, but that's a discussion for a different day. Aaron is installed. He is told how and instructed in the means by which he will engage in the ritual sacrifices and religious worship of the Jewish people. But particularly this morning, we read about the clothing that Aaron is told to wear. There are two things in particular I want to draw your attention to. One are a pair of epaulets. Epaulets are shoulder, I'm not sure exactly how to explain this. They're kind of pieces of fabric on the shoulder that ride on top. In the military, you see where they have a star or a stripe or something like that. So Aaron had a pair of epaulets. He also had a breastplate. On the epaulets, we are told in the Torah reading that on each one, that there were stones. And on those stones, it was engraved on one shoulder six, of, six names of the tribes of Israel, six of the 12, and then on the other shoulder, the remaining ones. All these stones are specified to be the exact same kind of stone, of Shoham, onyx stones. I don't know what an onyx stone is. I just know the translation of the word. Then we're told, and they have to be the exact kind of stone and the exact size on both sides. And we're told that this is lezikaron, to help him remember. Now, one idea may very well be that this was a zikaron. It was a, it was a way to remember because when Aaron was doing some of the ritual sacrifices, he had to recall the names of the tribes that he wasn't there for himself, that as a religious leader, he serves not himself, but the people. And so during the course of the ritual service, he would have to recite and remember the names of all the 12 tribes. So you could see he could look on his shoulder here, and he could look on his shoulder here, and he could see the names inscribed. And maybe this was a way of, it was kind of like a cheat sheet that you would take on a, a, on a test. You'd see the names. But I'm going to actually pop that theory because the breastplate also had uh, onyx stones, 12 of them, and they were also to be engraved with the names of each of the tribes of the people of Israel. The stones had to be the exact same stones. They had to be the exact same size. It was set on his chest, it says, on his chest, obviously over his heart, and we are told it had to be le zikaron, as a remembrance. So what was Aaron commanded to remember? Aaron was commanded to remember that what he is serving and who he is serving is not God. But Aaron was commanded that in serving the people, he must carry the responsibility on his shoulders and he must do it lovingly. The stones had to be equal in size and also equal in value because there can be no discernment between the people. He must serve them all equally and lovingly and responsibly. This idea, of course, is, I think, so deeply understood by us in the matter and nature of what we want from our religious leaders. Some religious leaders think that they're there to serve God, 
But in the Jewish prism of it, religious leaders first and foremost must serve the people. That is the reason why at the very end of the story of the Israelites wandering through the desert, Moses is not allowed to go into the land of Israel because the generation that he served were condemned to die in the desert. The captain must always go down with the ship. The story of the clothes that make the man or the woman is true, but ultimately the story really is the story of what kind of man or woman do you want to become? A person who is only consumed by your glory days in the past or a slow, agonizing tale of the person that you're meant to become. People are discharged from the army and they think that they leave their greatest story behind. The story that Judaism is telling you, that your greatest story is the thing that is in front of you all of the time. The story of responsibility and love, of caring for things, is a story that is deeply woven into the Torah portion for this morning about the responsibilities that leaders have, both to the community, leaders of communities, but every person in a community is a leader too. So I want to tell you a story that came to my mind. A part of this is actually comes by way of, uh, if you ever read the book called Climbing Jacob's Ladder, um, it was written by, uh, it's, it's a great book. It was written by uh, the cousin of the Canadian uh, comedian, Rick Moranis. Um, and his story and my story is somewhat similar. After coming back from Israel, I think in 90, God, who remembers, 92 or 93, um, I wasn't sure what to do. I thought law school was on the offing. Uh, I took the LSATs. I was about to sign my lease on the apartment, and I said, there's no way I can go to law school. Sorry, Stan. So there's no... And Steve, and any other lawyer that's in the room. <laughs> so I couldn't do it. And I didn't know what to do, to be honest with you. And my impulse always was in my life, when I didn't know where to go or what to do, I went to a yeshiva. And through a friend, um, I found a yeshiva called the Yeshiva of Flatbush, excuse me, the Yeshiva of Far Rockaway. And the head of the yeshiva is a man still alive today, thankfully. His name is Yechiel Per, and um, this yeshiva is a black hat, ultra-Orthodox yeshiva, but they opened their door to me, even though I was not of that ilk, and I formed a very interesting dialogue and relationship with the Rosh HaYeshiva, the head of the yeshiva, and the story of him, Rabbi Per, can be seen in this book, once again called Climbing Jacob's Ladder. He's a very interesting man. He was a big rabbi. And by me big, I mean big. He was like six foot four. And his wife was like four eight. So it was a very interesting thing to see. He told me the following story. And he asked me not to share it with the people in, in the yeshiva. But his father was also a rabbi. But often in those times, people couldn't make livings as an Orthodox rabbi serving an Orthodox congregation. So his father was employed as a rabbi of a conservative congregation in Queens. When his father passed away, he had left in his will the following directive. The directive was that he is to be buried with his congregation. This is impressive because often 
rabbis who were very religious would only deign themselves to be buried with other very orthodox people. But he saw it as his life's goal that the leadership that he showed in life must also be exemplified in death. That in life we carry the responsibilities on our shoulders. But as most of us as parents and grandparents know, that what we carry on our shoulders only has meaning if we carry it in our hearts as well. Shabbat Shalom.